The other one that happened was an individual who positioned themselves. We were going to hire them for a role of installing for us, and they positioned themselves as being the leader of a team, an SAP team that was doing implementations. And it was over a, a segment of the SAP software suite because nobody installs it all, right? It's just a monster. <laughs> and as I listened to them present, I just asked them to go to the whiteboard and map out for me where they fit in the role because something just didn't feel right. And then when we were done, I determined they really didn't lead the team. They were a player on the team is what became obvious. So they were misrepresenting how much of a leadership role they had played. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Ball. Now, that was Jeff Koser, and he's the founder and CEO at Zebrify. And in this episode, I talk with Jeff about selling during a pandemic and what happens after the pandemic. Now, I'd read something Jeff had written that I really liked. It was titled, and this was a couple months ago, it was titled, During the Pandemic, Is It Still Okay to Ask for the Order? And I thought that was a great title. Asked Jeff, let's say, let's talk about that. So Jeff suggests a five-step path to follow to put yourself in position using virtual selling to get the order. And we'll dig into that. As you'll hear, the best practices in a virtual sale are almost identical to best sales practices at any time. I mean, the wheel is not being reinvented with virtual selling. However, as Jeff and I get into, there are some nuances that you need to pay attention to. We also exchange some of our thoughts about the future of field sales. I mean, will it be as gloomy as many analysts have rushed to forecast? Well, probably not, but listen and inform your own opinion. So stick around. This is another interesting conversation. Before we get to Jeff, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or a review. Thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Hey, Andy, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me. Uh, I hear you've got your radio voice still intact. It sounds good. <laughs> My radio voice. Yeah, I guess. So um, where have you been hanging out during this uh, pandemic storm? So home is uh, technically Delafield, Wisconsin, on Nagawika Lake. The address is Heartland, but uh, this is lake country out here. So it's uh, it's been... I can't complain. I'm looking at the lake, even as I say this to you right now. <laughs> as you turn your head and look. So, um, I mean, Wisconsin is it's hard to go, you know, throw a rock and not hit a lake in Wisconsin, basically. So, True. isn't it? Yeah. It is. I, mean, I grew up in Madison, as we've talked about before, which is you know, built on isthmus with <laughs> isthmus. I can say that. <laughs> Easy for me to say. Uh, with what, five lakes. Um, yeah, lake. Being on a lake in the summer was part of the culture. It's better than being on a lake in the winter, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's probably some ice fishermen that would probably dispute that. True. I mean, they get out there in their huts with their TVs, watch the Packers play, and uh, escape from home for a few hours. They do. Drink some beer, do some other things. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's Wisconsin. You got to drink brandy, I think. And, and the beer, but got to be brandy. True. So, um, all right. So, one of the things we want to talk about was was you know, sort of this transition to a different mode of work, perhaps during the pandemic, and and also you know talk about sort of what it looks like perhaps on the back end, though who knows when that will be. 
Um, and I, I, you interesting. You wrote this post about is it still okay to ask for the order during a pandemic? And I sort of curious was was that in response to someone telling you that it wasn't? <laughs> well. You know, I just think you have to be that much more respectful right now. I'm, even as you try to connect with someone for an initial meeting or a follow-on meeting or, or certainly for a closing meeting, I think that you have to be respectful that their priorities might shift at a moment's notice during, during a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that was really the point. Yeah, well, it's, you put together this five-part path. I wanted to go through it because I thought that was very useful. And, and um, we have spoken about similar things, maybe using different words. But but your first part of your five-part path was to only pursue prospects where you bring great value. And I was curious, how did you define great value? Well, the whole the whole premise of selling to zebras, as you know, is is – identify where you fit really well and then stay there. So it really is, is in the spirit of, of uh, the foundation of how we got started. Mm-hmm. It, if you recall, um, when the zebra was born, when I was at Bonn, that sounds like it goes together, born at Bonn, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> for, for people who don't remember, Bonn was a ERP software system. Exactly. Back in the on-prem days, that's correct. It was all on-prem, on-premise software. Uh, SAP was already large and formidable. Oracle was uh, formidable, not just in database but in application software already at that time, although less so than they are today. And and Bon was obviously considerably smaller, but also headquartered outside the U.S like SAP, but had no presence in the U.S. when I started and also had no real customer base. Um, so as a survival technique, we had to figure out who would buy from a company when it's something that runs your entire business from end to end. And it's pretty much a bet your business decision. And, and if not, certainly a bet your career decision when you make that that choice to purchase bonds. So we we figured out yeah, to buy the to buy the unknown on you know not brand name at that time. Offer. Exactly. Yeah, that was that was my my path through most of life actually in sales. Yeah. You know, sometimes we choose those because we like <laughs> that uh, that role, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's where it came from. It was it was out of survival. How do you how do you find prospects who would buy from you after you go through all the work? Because you don't want to just be considered; you want to win. Mm, exactly. Right. So, and we used to say we worked harder to get our first appointment than SAP worked to get a deal. <laughs> <laughs> that's so familiar because that's, yeah, I mean, I, I, for my part, I worked, I wasn't selling software, I was selling mission critical communication systems that companies were basing their business on. That, uh, yeah, from startups selling, you know, multi million dollar systems against big, well known brand name tech companies. And uh, you just nailed it, is right? Is is in that? I, so often you think sales these days that that people are just sort of satisfied just to have competed, and and yeah, you know, no, <laughs> we we went out business if we didn't win. Yeah, and and I'd rather be fourteenth than second. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I would have would have left ship jump ship earlier if I knew I was going to be 14th. Yeah, but the idea is to get out early, right? It's a metaphor for getting out earlier. Yeah, yeah. Versus exactly. expending all your resources only to lose. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, sort of <laughs> maybe off track here completely from what we were talking about. But but to your point, just getting back to your point about winning, you know, is as, as one of the things I, I see, at least in a lot of SaaS companies, is being satisfied with low win rates. Drives me nuts. Most companies actually have low win rates. Yeah, because they very efficient at top of the funnel, getting activity into it. And sort of content to play the odds. Yeah, we. It's it's also another one of the basic tenets uh, of of zebra selling is that you pursue those prospects. Where if you if you stayed within the profile that the perfect prospect defines, you'd close up to ninety percent of the business that you pursue. And and most people, especially CFOs, when you make that claim, they don't believe it. <laughs> Most salespeople wouldn't believe it. it was, true, but CFOs are sort of born with that skeptic gene, so mm-hmm. they violently don't believe it. <laughs> but but we have lots of proof, and and that's a great place to start out with is with a challenge with an audacious claim that you can actually back up. It's it's a little bit like being Muhammad Ali, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's uh, let's stay on that that path then. So. Yeah, we've got this, and we'll come back to what we're <laughs> originally we're going to talk about. But, but because it gets this idea of yeah, you said only pursue prospects for being great value. Is if you're doing that, then you should be able to win a much higher fraction of those deals. No, no doubt about it. And and what what a a good crisis affords us, and and I say that purposefully, uh, a crisis eliminates. The wheat from the chaff, right? I mean, just to, to wax biblical for a second, it, it separates out the pretenders from the contenders, um, because and, and and it forces us to get better. Because the only solution, I think, the only solutions that actually are going to get bought today are ones where you can demonstrate that you bring unique value, and, and I believe you have to have a business case to back it up. Otherwise, the company is either going to hunker down and not spend anything. Or they're going to spend those available dollars on something else, maybe mm-hmm. completely different than what your solution is. Yeah, well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that that part later on because I think that's that's a critical part that gets overlooked. But I, to me, that when I was looking at this and thinking about the great value, is is one of the things I've been speaking about during this time. Is is as others have been as well. Is yeah, I, th- I believe the key is what I call speed to value or speed to outcome. Mm-hmm. Which is I like that. Can you identify those urgent problems? Still part of the you know, the key strategic initiative of the company, but maybe it's not this gigantic transformation project they're going to do or this big expensive initiative. But there's still something in there that they need to get done. They need to get solved. They need to achieve something, and you have to identify those. If they get something with a, a quicker, more demonstrable ROI at this time. Especially if you're going into a new logo, you get in as a valued partner. Especially you demonstrate that quick ROI, speed of value, you're in. And there's a lot of value to being in. There, you're in the yes. you're in the accounts payable system, which 
with a larger company is not not necessarily a small thing either. Um, but your speed to value is is a smart phrase because it speed it speaks to risk. It lowers risk if the, if you're quick if there's quick speed to value. They, it's an easier yes because they believe they will actually achieve some value. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it plays into the hands of smaller competitors because you and I were talking about you know, being on that end of the, the equation oftentimes throughout our career. Is I found as a smaller supplier, this, this approach was played to my advantage because especially the bigger guys hated, even in non-pandemic times, they hated to have deals de-scoped. <laughs> I mean, because they had bigger quotas and they had bigger nuts to 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 hit. And yeah, you know, if you could really narrow down the focus and find those things that are the most urgent, most pressing, that to your point before is is help de-risk it as a small supplier. That's that's a very effective way to compete. That's that's uh, another really good observation. You're, you're right. I mean, you might even eliminate some competitors because it it isn't big enough for them to move the needle, so they lose interest. Exactly. And the thing is, it plays to the customer's advantage oftentimes because, to your point, in mission critical or critical business, you know, solutions problems you're dealing with, yeah, somebody something could be at stake for these people personally if they make the wrong decision, but. Give them a way to prove to everybody else that, yeah, we can bring this system in. It integrates with our system that we're doing now. It provides this quick ROI. Yeah, if you're a smaller competitor, that's the path you want to take. I always call it start with the smallest logical relationship you can start with with your buyers. Well, the land and expand strategy, you know, people use different different phrases to describe that. But that's that's been effective for a long time. But I, but I think... When when companies are nervous, when there's when there's a lot of fear, I think it's uh, a great strategy because the, the the they can dip their toe in the water, and if they're wrong, it, it they're you've de-risked it for them to the point where they could. And SaaS makes it easier to shift anyway, so it's sure right. So you they can get in, they can get out quickly. Um, but it also, but that also raises the risk for the supplying company. So you and I, who are selling a solution with that is a SaaS, we have to make sure that we we over deliver, or we could mm-hmm. get eliminated very quickly, right? So, well, I think that's where the the speed to ROI comes. Is is I think in normal times, you know, land and expand is yeah, we're gonna put this in. Yeah, we sort of got a year figure it out because then you know maybe the renewals a year or maybe it's two. It's like, no, let's, what can we do that in 90 days, they've got something, they've got a return coming. That's ironic. That's ironic. Really ironic because at the top of the hour, uh, that is the exact conversation I'm having with one of our clients is how can they change the turnover process and therefore the beginning steps of that they take with a new client to do exactly what you just described, bring very quick value right out of the gate. Yeah. Because the the onus then on the competition then, if they're looking to replace you out a year, is, well, yeah, can you deliver the same way these guys did? Exactly. And that's that's a much higher bar other than just, yeah, this is sort of a like-for-like like switch. You know, no big deal. And it's like, no. Yeah, and, and the absence of other sort of heavy switching costs 
the way you make it the switch the sort of the switching costs <laughs> more tangible is have over delivered as you talked about yeah that's to over deliver right now is is the goal that we set with all of our clients and um it's you know we had just to share with you open up a little bit we we had one when the when this whole uh, pandemic started. It wasn't even pandemic yet. It was just the fear of of what could be coming. They furloughed us, um, and another client asked us to take take down our licensing fees by twenty percent just to protect themselves so that they didn't run into a cash crunch. But mm-hmm. but other than that, we were okay. We started a closed business, and and those the one client that that brought us down actually came back, brought us back, paid us back fees, and then brought us up 20%. Um, and so we, we've been made whole. Now we did lose one. They've still furloughed us, but, but, uh, so the, the over delivering, uh, did pay off. I mean, we put a lot of, we put a lot into it to help them and prove that, well, they, they saw the results, the Mm -hmm. results. So that, that, that worked out pretty well. But, um, that made us nervous right at the beginning of this whole scary time. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's. Have you been able to maintain your staff? We have. Yeah, in fact, we we just added another person, which is um, each each hire we make is is critical because our culture is really important to us. So it's every hire is 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 uh, it's something that we pay a lot of attention to. We. That's part of what we've built in the past is every single person matters and you're only as good as your weakest link. Yeah, that certainly the case. Yeah, I think we've we've um, I don't know, added about a third again, new employees during this time. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, business is, is good, but we're also fortunate to be serving a, a segment that, that – uh, Sort of a high priority for a lot of companies, <laughs> sales during this this you know, whole pandemic. Um, so the second part of your path you talked about was and you mentioned before is approach people courteously and with respect, realizing it might not be a priority. Um, but and I, there's a couple things that you said that just for me is is and I know you, so I I know you believe this, but it's like isn't that always the case? That's how you want to approach prospects <laughs> funny funny how all these things ring true no matter when you're trying to sell to someone right. aren't they but but it's it's just like so many of our values that that we prioritize as as we get squeezed during something like this um, they become even that much more pronounced that much more important yeah I mean I, I was in with a conversation with somebody recording one about you know just sort of how infuriating all this uh you know content that's put out there over the last several months about now is the time to lead with empathy and i'm thinking <laughs> what what crap you should always be leading with empathy right i mean it's just like i think it's to your point is is you know crises are good time to reflect and to focus on best practices because you know, if you <laughs> and time to sort of reinforce them or or you know whatever you need to do, it's if you're if this is you're sort of new to the game with some of these things at this point in time, it's not going to come across as very authentic. 
Yeah, sincerity sincerity matters. I think that um, it's harder to sell virtually because you can't you can't read the room. Um, and when you're selling virtually, your your you and your content have to be that much better. But your character and your true motives still come through. Um, exactly. It's which is kind of another way of saying what the point you just made, right? So you 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 can't hide. I think it's even harder to hide. Yeah. Why? Well, but I'm part. Let's dig into that a little bit because this idea. Yeah. Some people have bless their hearts. Yeah. People I know have rushed to market with books about virtual selling. <laughs> you know, writing seventy thousand word books in three months and getting them published, which is a very impressive feat. But. Yeah, I've gone on record and said that. Yeah, virtual selling, in-person selling, whatever. It's it's like to your point earlier. It's the the same basic sales behaviors have to be there. And if you're not good at it in person, you're not going to be good at it virtually. Um, and it's like for me, the medium doesn't really matter. I mean, if your ability to connect with someone, to build a rapport, to start developing the relationship, that connection. Um, it's the same. You know, what's interesting is um, just you know, we've been selling virtually here for a very long time. Um, yeah, I was going to make the point. <laughs> we, as a profession, we started selling virtually when Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. There you go. That's true. And and that's yeah. So there. So I'll just diverge on another point. You and I could do this all day, um, <laughs> but that's why I've always interviewed people both ways from from the very beginning of my career. Which is, do they have a telephone presence? Can they read somebody over the phone? And then, do they have a face to face presence? Because those are two different things. Interesting. That's that's a great point. I've I've actually I've never heard anybody bring that up before. Is to deliberately. Interview people multi multi mode. So, would you do it uh, like by necessity? You do it on the phone and over Zoom or something today? So, I do do it over both today with over the just over a mobile, you know, over a cell phone and mm -hmm. over over Zoom today. And I I always have them present something to me too because I think that's something that you can see. Um, or ask them to do a task. Like I'll ask them to read our book and to come back with questions or to highlight the things that impacted them. Because if, if they'll do that step, that, that means it's something they really want. Mm -hmm. right? And a presentation tells you, I mean, I've so many times in my career, I've almost made a mistake where I've watched, I would have hired the person and then I watched them present back to me and then I didn't make the hire. Because it's What did you see? Well, in one case, I saw um, it, it was someone who was tr attractive. You know, it doesn't matter what your gender is, but they were they were attractive, and um, they used that really effectively in a face to face interview. And so I asked them to do a presentation, and when they did the presentation, they and it was a topic that they got to choose. I did not feel that same presence. I didn't feel that same um, command of the of the of the flow, and I didn't want. I, I made a decision that I would feel uncomfortable buying from this person or potentially even allowing them a second meeting. Hmm. Interesting. That that's probably the most 
glaring example. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other one that happened was an individual who positioned themselves. We were going to hire them for a role of installing uh, for us, and they positioned themselves as being the leader of a team, an SAP team that was doing um, implementations. And, and mm-hmm. it was over a, a segment of the SAP uh, software suite because nobody installs it all, right? It's just a monster. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, as I uh, listened to them present, I just, I asked them to go to the whiteboard and map out for me where they fit in the role because something just didn't feel right. And then when we were done, I determined they really didn't lead the team. They were a player on the team is what became obvious. Right. So they were misrepresenting how much of a management position, how how much of a leadership role they had played. Which people fudge all the time on resumes. <laughs> they do. The, in, I have another. I wonder, does, do you think LinkedIn is, is changing that or exacerbating it? Because, yeah, if you, you put something on LinkedIn, anybody can come see it. I mean, former peers. I mean, there's lots of people who could take a look at it and say, well, that's, that's BS. That's not what happened. I wonder if it's having any sort of impact that way or whether you've seen that. I don't know. I, I would hope that the... You know, you can't fix stupid, so it's probably <laughs> it's probably still out there. Um, you know, the truth is a good enough story. I guess that should just be our mantra, right? The truth is a good enough story. And if you I'm, – I'm sure that people will embellish because they put it in writing before, and they don't even think about the fact that so many more eyes are on it. I mean, think about what people do and say and link to on Facebook, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I, I think that it is, I bet it's probably the same. I'll bet the number of people who stretch the truth on paper versus in electronic form is the same. Interesting. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Unfortunately, probably true. I mean, I always think back to, I think it was Mark Twain saying as, yeah. If you never lie, you never have to remember anything. Yeah, or you have to remember less. That's true, right? <laughs> right. But uh, so uh, another point on your your pathway was, uh, which was interesting, provide an easy opt-in or opt-out, provide the, the buyer an easy opt-in or opt-out that leaves them feeling good about you and your company. So tell us what you meant by that. We sort of touched a little bit on earlier, but let's go a little deeper on that. So that's really about creating a buying cycle experience for a prospect. You know, none of us like to be sold to and because it doesn't, doesn't feel good. Even salespeople don't like to be sold to. And the buyer really always has the option to opt in or opt out. But, but if we as salespeople realize that that is true and we create a collaborative each step is a collaborative decision to go to the next step. It's it's clear. Mm-hmm. It's laid out. It's it's mm-hmm. it's agreed to, and and that feels good to both of us because they have the problem we solve. We solve it really well, and we map out how that next step is going to bring them value. And even even the the best sales cycles are the ones that bring value to the prospect. Even if they don't end up buying from us, where yeah. they they walk away with something that would make them better or help them make a better decision, whether they decide to to go down our path or not. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I use the phrase that you know, one of the things that, that happens when you're selling to someone is they get smarter. Yes. And they get smarter in process. And this is why sometimes I, I caution people against getting too rigid in their stage, sales stages and their exit criteria and so on, and assuming that you know, one defined process is going to apply to all prospects uniformly, which it won't, is that the prospect's getting smarter. And so they oftentimes, in my experience, companies I've dealt with, is, is their requirements begin to shift through the sales process. That's and so you have to true. continually be reevaluating, asking the questions, to your point, getting agreement that, hey, we've, you know, these are the choices we've made so far about how we're going to proceed. This is the next choice we're going to make. And yeah, in the absence of that, if you're just bullying straight ahead, yeah, you're going to create a lot of friction. Yeah, and the friction comes in the form of uh, this term that uh, Jonah Berger has written a book, a Wharton professor wrote a book called uh, The Catalyst, about or Catalyst, how people, how to change people's minds. But yeah, research showing that everybody has this, this sort of, I call it a cognitive bias, which is persuasion resistance. And we all have it. We do. And so, so if you're just bullying ahead, sort of, this is our process, this is where we're going to go, we're pushing you forward. People can dig in their heels, and that resistance is the very definition of friction. Well, and if you and if the next step is mapped out not for your benefit but for the prospect's benefit, then you're really nailing it. And that's that's part of what I'm abdicating as well. It's just that you should be thinking from their side of the desk. What would you want to do if you were buying this solution? What what would help you decide if this was the best solution for you, not only to solve this this problem, but that this is something that you should solve versus like we talked about before, spending money on something alternatively, maybe not even related to what you're talking about with that prospect. Yeah. Okay. So the last or the fifth of your, of last of your uh, points in your path, which I wanted to get into is you said, ask for the business. Only if you've verified the prospect as a business issue and you've verified the value of solving the business problem. Now, that last part, I agree with 100%, but I rarely see sellers do that. <laughs> and, and for me, you don't have a qualified prospect, really, fully qualified prospect, until that takes place. You don't. And... And the reason most salespeople don't do that is because we haven't given them the tools to do that. Our, their, their, their organizations, their sales operations group, their VP of sales, if they're, if they're an individual contributor, they haven't been given the tools and been taught how, how to do that, Andy. Very few companies have tools that go beyond maybe a simple ROI spreadsheet very few have a guided selling path where you can identify on the front end, first of all, like we talked about, they are a zebra, meaning they're, they're, they're a really good prospect for you. Mm -hmm. They have business, you found evidence that they have business problems that you've solved. Then you have proof from customers who are just like them. And that, that proof should include the metrics. So if you've solved those problems for others that are like them, 
what value did they say in their words that you created for them by solving those? And if that's the foundation of how you prove it to them, then it's more believable because it doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from your marketing department. In fact, it's not, we, we say it's not the voice of the customer, or excuse me, it's not the voice of the salesperson. It becomes the voice of the customer. And the voice of the customer is more believed because they, they said it in their own words, even if it's not it's quite as eloquent, they said it in their own words. And, and that's how you prove it. That, that's the, 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 the piece that is missing in most processes is the proof of value and the collaborative agreement that, you've, that you are able to create that value. I think there's another step, though, that I was referring to more specifically, which was you know, if I was selling, which I was for years, large complex systems to a large enterprise, that if I couldn't verify that they had done their own internal planning and had quantified what they believe the value they were going to receive from achieving the outcomes they desired, mm-hmm. then they weren't ready to make a decision. That's really, that's the whole premise of hope is not a strategy, right? People, people don't know how to decide until they figure out they can't decide and then they have to figure out how they're going to decide. Right. So, so, you know, as part of your process, you know, if you're thinking about this as a seller, is even if you have to educate the buyer about this, which you don't because if it's a sizable commitment they're making, someone's done this calculation somewhere, right? There's somebody, the calculation had to be done to get sign-off, even to proceed and say, let's invest more time in exploring this. And I've always found that the sooner you got to that point, you know, if you could be the, the first supplier to get to that point with the buyer, you know, I had a qualified buyer then at that point, the chances of them making the decision to do nothing diminished very, very severely. And which meant you're more likely to get a decision and more likely to get a winning decision. That's often what people do with an RFP or an RFI process is they, they figure out the internal business case like you just described. And then via the web, they pursue who might have a solution and they, and they, they assemble the list of, of alternatives that they're going to consider. So that's that's the buying side decision process, right? Realization we have a problem, quantify what it might do for us, look for alternatives, and then and then start to engage. And and like you and I have spoken about in the past, that's why they say today that sixty to seventy percent of the selling is done because they they check out the web, they check out all the sources that we make available to them as companies, and they decide who they're going to look at based on what they find out there, and then they select who they're going to allow to participate in in the process, which is which is. Um, a key part of the point you're making is that they've determined that it's worth it to deploy resources to try to solve this problem, right? Yeah. Well, I actually go a step further, which was that through those first few steps that you described, before they get to the point of deciding, I'd, I'd divide it into two two phases, really. Defining what we want to do is the first phase, and the second phase is deciding who we want to do it with. And I encourage my coach teams, when I build teams, when I sell myself, I overemphasize the first part because I want them to basically be influenced heavily by me in their decision of how they want to solve their problem. I agree. And so when they go to the part of then making a decision about who to solve it with, 
yeah, they put out their RFI, their RFP, whatever. Somebody picks up and says, oh, wow, this has got Andy written all over it. Yeah, yeah. That's, and, and that's where I was going to go um, next was that what we've learned in talking with – so we, we abdicate that you talk with your customers, and, and we do that work. We do voice of the customer work as, as a foundation of everything that we create because when you do that and you talk to the decision maker at, the, at your client companies, you learn why they bought at a – and you learn insights that you didn't have before. It's, it's amazing. You think you know why an executive would buy from Hugh from you mm-hmm. and you find out you, you didn't know all the reasons they bought. You didn't know their business problem from their perspective and, yep. and it causes you to expand your business case and, and your discussions and the things that you bring that uniquely qualify you as, as, as the best alternative, which does what you just said. It allows you to shape how they make that decision to move forward, what they put in that RFP, what they what they determine is important that a solution has to have. Yeah, there's um, a researcher, professor, a gentleman named Paul Nutt, and um, I forget where he was, maybe Indiana University. But I read him a couple books, like the, one of the Heath Brothers books talks about his research and so on. And I just done other reading on him and and. What he says, as companies go, businesses go through this process of making decisions, is they basically have a process defined or defined, I guess, to create options, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We've identified this problem. Now we're going to identify one or more options we have in order to solve it. And then we're going to choose one of those options and take that and say, okay, who can help us make this become a reality? And so, yeah, you want to become one of the options, right? You want to shape those <laughs> options. Yes. And the thing that's that's was interesting is in his research, in one paper he wrote, and sort of paraphrasing roughly, but it, the numbers are pretty astounding. It was like for decision makers and be it in you know enterprise, we're oftentimes presented. Well, it's like 99% of the time they're presented no more than two options. Something like that. I mean, it was just like mind-blowing, right? So basically, you know, decision makers and corporations are, are, if you can be in one of those two or influence both of them, ideally, but even if you're influencing one of two, your odds of winning go up substantially. So it's, it's this idea of being focused on helping them identify the problem, Quantify as you talked about, yeah. You know, to get to the point where they're saying, "Okay, now let's put this RFQ out, it's RFI, or however we're going to do it." And it's it's a different way of of looking at business. I find that so many sellers, in the way we train sellers predominantly, is just on that last stage, right? Right. How to sell a product to an interested prospect, but oftentimes you're too late. They already have somebody else in mind, and you're so far, yeah, and and and. The, to your point, you're so far behind, there's no catching up. And, and, and you might have been so far behind just when they're on step three, if you, tr- mm-hmm. if you tried to. We, we've been going through an exercise. We've added this to our voice of the customer work, and, and we've been doing this even inside of our own customer base. Well, the, the first question we ask is, what would customers do 
What would they buy if your solution didn't exist? What would mm-hmm. they have done? Mm-hmm. And it it just if you ask that of your own customers, you 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 get some you get answers that you would not expect. You think they might come up with someone that is a particularly good competitor of yours that maybe even has similar uh, features and functions, maybe positions themselves similarly. But very often, what they come up with is they would have used Excel spreadsheets or they, you know, or they would have, <laughs> right. They, they would have used some, they would have stayed with right. whatever they were doing. They would have hired another body. Right. Right. It's, it's not what you expect. So, so a lot of times, and this is why, this is why, this is the fundamental reason why salespeople fall into the trap of talking about their whiz bang features and functions, because they think that the prospect understands why those are important and what they even mean when most prospects don't. Well, I think it's a combination of things. So I think it's that, but I also think it's because sellers think that fundamentally their job is to persuade someone to buy their product instead of I look at it and as I'm trying to influence the choices they're making about how to solve the problem. And if I do that, yes, I'm dramatically increasing my odds of winning. If I'm just trying to persuade somebody to buy what I have, then that shapes the questions I ask. It shapes the whole whole trajectory of the sales process. It doesn't mean you won't win some deals, but yeah, if you're selling an enterprise system, you're going to miss out on a ton of opportunities. I like the, I like the way you shifted that. This perspective has just got to be shifted. Yeah, yeah. It's it's I, to me that's sort of the fundamental problem I think in sales is is that we're confronting sort of all the time when we train sellers and so on. But it's, it's, you know, I think we go too far trying to train skills and we don't spend enough time trying to educate people about, you know, this is the perspective you need to have, right? I mean, a great simple example is I, I don't know if you've ever read the book selling with noble purpose uh, written by Lisa McLeod. It's, I recommend it. It's a great, great book. I like the sound of it. Yeah, and it's been around for a while. She's just 10, 12 years. She's just releasing a second edition. Um, and so I was really glad I had a chance to read it and talk with her. And But you know, if she defines this purpose as you know, being able to say or ask yourself is, you know, how does what we do change the lives of our customers? I like that. It's, it's to a point of, you know, the question you're asking just a little bit ago is like, yeah, can you answer this question? Right, you, you were talking about, you know, why did they buy from us? But it's like, could you, as a salesperson, say, well, how does how does our product or service change the lives of our customers? It's kind of like what Zig Ziglar said so many times all throughout his life: if you help enough people get what they want, you'll get more than enough of what you want. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. But it's just putting in these terms. It's, it's a different perspective, and that's the whole point of her book: is is yeah, we have to shift the perspective of sellers because it's it's not a matter of inadequate skills, which is what the vast bulk of training is about. It's really about what do they think they're doing? That's why one of the things, so, so to help salespeople learn that, one of the things we do is we actually coach them. How do you share your zebra live with that prospect? 
so that you can both determine you're in the right place. And, mm-hmm. and we used to do this even when it was manual before there was software where we would, one of my, one of my guys was a six foot three Texan and I won't give you his name, still a good friend. He's still out there selling, but he would sit down with the executive, sometimes even the CEO of a company and walk through our zebra and, you know, about the second or third point he'd make, that executive would start saying, well, that sounds just like us. That sounds just like us. And he would walk through it. And by the time he got done, the guy would invariably say, because he had already done his homework, he knew he was in front of someone where he fit particularly well. The guy would say, well, this, this sounds like, you know, an awful lot like us. And David would say, that's right. And that's why when you're done, you're going to buy from me. <laughs> <laughs> but he oh, made Wisconsin, it. interviewing a Texan. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was, it was like he turned it into something lighter at the end, but what he was really doing is saying, does, are we in the, are we both in the right place? You know, mm-hmm. am I going to help you solve this problem? Do I, do I have something that fits you really well to solve the problem you're trying to solve? Let's decide this together. That that's what that process did. Mm-hmm. And that's ideally, is that the position you want to be in? It is because that starts out the relationship on, on the right path. And that's, that's kind of the point that I was making on that, on that very first bullet. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, following up with that is, you know, we talked about this persuasion resistance. Yeah. I I just find it's ironic that, and we, even without this research that the Jonah Berger cites in his book, we all know this, right? We've all felt this persuasion resistance that people have. Um, And yet, this is how we train sellers. Well, it, it is. You, <laughs> we, we, we train sellers in the one behavior that we know everybody hates. We, we do. <laughs> we do. We, the art of persuasion. Yeah, it's like, it's like uh, politics and religion at a uh, family gathering, you know? <laughs> it, yeah. It's no fun. Nobody's going to change anybody's mind, and everybody leaves feeling crummy. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a great way to describe it. And, um, yeah, well, we could go on for go on and on forever, I think, but, uh, unfortunately we've run out of time, but, uh, Jeff, as always a pleasure to talk with you. Andy, it's always fun for me too. And we could go on forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, we'll, we'll do it again. So, uh, tell people they can connect with you and find out more about, uh, Zebrafy. So I'm easy to find. It's Jeff at Zebrafi, Z-E-B-R-A-F-I dot com. That's my email, or you can check us out at Zebrafi.com. Yeah, when did you do your sort of rebranding? We did it when we became a C-Corp. And, and ah. the reason for that was so that we could take on funding. Um, we were an S-Corp. Um, prospective investors wanted a C-Corp. And the state of Wisconsin wouldn't let us keep the same name, believe it or not. Really? Yeah. Huh. So did you raise money? We, we haven't. We were really just getting going with that. Okay. Well, good luck on that. Well, thank you. All right. Jeff, we'll look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, Andy. Okay, friend, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this program. I also want to thank my guest, Jeff Kozer, for sharing his insights with us today. 
If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement, with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd certainly appreciate that. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with us, with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.